If you would, open your Bibles to Colossians 3. Last week, we looked at Colossians verses 1 through 4, and today we're going to be looking at Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17. Give you a moment to get there, and then, uh, if you would, we'll read together. I'll read for us if you follow along. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, being thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God, and we are abundantly thankful for it. Have you ever had a spiritual light bulb moment? Like, like a spiritual aha moment. I finally get it. Something's clicked. Finally had, something's finally made sense. I'll never forget uh, one of those big moments coming for me in high school. I was uh, a high school student sitting in church in, in youth group on a Sunday morning wasn't even our youth pastor speaking, but just a faithful member was there teaching us that day. And this is what he said as he was talking about sanctification, our growth in Christ. You can't just stop sinning. It'll never work. You have to replace sin with worship. And a big piece A big reality of sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, sunk in for me there. Because until then, I I had struggled. I had thought, I I just need to get rid of sin. I just need to stop it. But I didn't know the next step. And so I was focused on stopping my sinning and just merely that and unsuccessful at it. And maybe you find yourself in the same spot. You're saved. You're redeemed by the blood of Christ. You're made holy. You're a new creation. You desire to honor the Lord and live a life that pleases him. But you feel stuck. You're trying to fight sin. But it just doesn't seem to be working. Perhaps you're struggling in your marriage. Perhaps You're someone who consistently caves into lust and the desires of the flesh, and you feel enslaved by your desires. Maybe you're a parent who keeps losing it with their kids every single day. Or you could be here this morning struggling with a number of other things, anxiety, worry, anger, laziness, and a whole slew of sins. And you're wondering, What am I missing? 
Why do I keep coming back to the same sin over and over? And we often find ourselves, because we're saved, we join a church, we're learning, and we try to move on to advanced things before we master the fundamentals, before we master the basics. Colossians 3, 12 to 17 is here to help us in our struggle against sin because it shows us, just like I learned when I had that aha moment in high school, that sanctification, growing in Christ, is more than just trying to stop sinning or quit sin. It shows us that we must put on the new self. It tells us that sin is to be replaced by worship. It helps us grasp the full circle of why we can grow in Christ, how we grow in Christ, and what growth in Christ really looks like in our lives. It helps us master and grasp basics. So in Colossians 3, 12 to 17, we're going to examine three things. First, why you can grow. Two, how you grow. And three, what growth in Christ, what growth in your life, in a practical sense, might look like. Point number one, look at verse 12, why you can grow. Paul tells us to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He calls us chosen, holy and beloved. And if you were here last week, think back with me to Colossians 3, 1 to 4. We talked about our new identity in Christ. This was the focus of the previous passage, that if we are saved, we are now described as in Christ, that this is the most fundamental reality about us, that if you stripped everything else away in your life, you would be described as in Christ. We're united to him. We have all that he has. We've received from him complete redemption, new life, forgiveness of sins, and a glorious future. We've been given a new, a higher position in Christ. And Colossians 3.12 reiterates aspects of this when it calls us holy, chosen, and beloved. Because we are in Christ, we are completely changed. This is why you can grow. Prior to Christ, you would have been described as someone who was condemned, who was lost, who was dead in your sin, who was far off from God. Someone, part of what Colossians 1 calls the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of this world. But now that you are in Christ, and he's redeemed you by the work he's done on the cross, you can be described as chosen ones. Meaning that before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you and deemed to save you. You are his. He has plucked you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. You are his and nothing will separate you from the love of God and Christ for you. Chosen. You're also described as holy ones, indicating that rather than being still condemned in our sin, we're justified, meaning that we're now declared righteous and we're cleansed from sin. 
and we're cleansed from the power of sin ruling in our lives. Now you can walk in holiness. Now you can walk in righteousness. You can choose life instead of death, that which glorifies God rather than that which offends him, rather than that which condemns. This term holy, interesting enough, is the same word that Paul would use elsewhere to describe saints. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You have been declared holy. You've been designated a saint. You're set apart for Christ, your brand new creation in him. We're chosen, we're holy, and Paul tells us, we're beloved. That we who were once so far off from God have been brought near. Our sin had separated us from him and now Christ has bridged the gap and we can even be called sons, fellow heirs with Christ and friends of God. We've been brought near to him and we can come to him. We experience deep fellowship with the Lord. Christian, are you aware that God loves you? That he truly loves you like no one else could ever love you more fully and completely than he does. You are beloved. You've been chosen. You've been called holy and you're beloved. And these are glorious realities for us. These are part of our new position, our new standing of being in Christ. And these new realities of being in Christ Jesus are the foundation for our spiritual growth. They are the why of why we can grow. For if we were not new creatures, if God had not set us apart unto himself, if he had not saved us, if we were not in union with Christ, we'd have no hope for real change. We wouldn't be able to do it. So our new position and our new identity is the why of Christian growth. Simply understanding your identity, though, is like being a 16-year-old brand-new driver. Perhaps you've never sitting behind the wheel of a car before. There's an engine, a steering wheel, lights that work. Your parents put gas in the tank, but you've never done it. You've got to figure out how to drive this thing. doesn't matter what kind of car it is. If you don't know how to get things moving, You won't go anywhere. And this is why we must understand how we grow. And we see how we grow, point number two in verse 12. The first three words there, put on then. I want to remind you for a moment that Colossians 3, 1 to 4 told us to seek the things that are above and set our minds on those things. Our priorities as Christians are are changed. We are to put on, but growth comes from a Christ-centered mindset, from a spirit-filled life. Because it is him who enables us to live for him, to serve him. And it's only by his power that we can even begin to grow. And so Colossians 3.12, in light of that, describes 
our growth in Christ as putting on. Putting on what? Putting on what earlier in Colossians 3 is described as the new self. Look at verse 7 through 9 with me. Paul's speaking still to the same believers and he says, you once walked in these certain sins when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. And in verse 9 he says, seeing that you have put off the old self. And then in verse 10, have put on the new self. It sounds like something we've done in these verses. But Paul wrote these, and these are actually verses that speak of something that's happened in the past and that's happened to you. Because part of our new standing as holy saints, as beloved, is that Christ has made us, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And so our old selves have faded away, and now we are new creatures. And so we are to put on this new self, this new identity that Christ has given us. What you already are positionally, you must grow more and more into by putting on. This is the how of growth in Christ. Uh, This simple answer is the answer to the question, how do I overcome sin? It's not the entire, complete, full picture, but it's that which really makes Christian growth happen. It's what puts our Christian lives on a trajectory of growth, you might say, rather than staying stagnant. And so many Christians' lives are defined by stagnancy. They're described by a whole lot of motion, things happening, going to church, reading my Bible, doing this thing, doing that, Little to no real progress at times. Putting on is what helps us move from motion and busyness, progress, to true growth in Christ. Sets us on the right trajectory. Because Christian growth is all about becoming more like Christ, growing in Christ likeness. Or as Romans 8.29 would put it, being conformed into his image. cannot remain stagnant. We must progress. We must put on that which Christ has called us to. James Stewart was a Scottish pastor and theologian, and he described the new position of the Christian as this. He said, Christ is the redeemed man's new environment. He has been transplanted into a new soil and a new climate, and both soil and climate are Christ." As such, our lives must begin to reflect this new environment, this new soil and climate that we've now been placed in. Our lives are meant to begin to sprout, to grow, and to be cultivated in this atmosphere of Christ. You're part of this new atmosphere already if you're a Christian, but we're not to lay dormant. We're to grow bit by bit, bearing fruit in service to the Lord and for his glory. So that we begin to take on the beauty and the purpose of this atmosphere, of this climate, of this position that we've been given. 
it would be really silly for a, a tree in the Amazon be planted there and say, you know what, despite all this rain, despite the beautiful climate and the abundance of nutrition provided to me in the soil and the most lush place on earth, I'd just rather not grow. I'd just rather not do it. So it's silly for us with the position that we've been given as Christ to just remain stagnant. We must put on. And yet there is something that comes prior to this or alongside with this putting on of the new self. Paul tells us what it is in Colossians 3.5. If you look there with me, just before our verses, it says, put to death what is earthly in you. In large part, putting on the new self is the actionable, practical key to growth in Christ. You can think of it kind of like putting on a uniform. The proper clothes that a Christian is to wear. You're now dressing like a Christian. How many of you had jobs where you've had to wear a uniform? Some of you. Or perhaps you've gone to a school where a uniform was required. Imagine if you got a new job, and instead of taking off the old uniform, you kept the old one on, and you just put the new one on over it. I'm just going to keep this old one on. You'd look a bit funny. Your shirt would be hanging out, and your old shirt would be kind of shown, and there'd be lumps and bumps, and it'd be just kind of disfigured, wouldn't it? You'd look silly wearing two sets of clothes. Putting on the new self can't be done alone because when we simply put on without putting off, that which we put on is kind of distorted by the sin that remains and hangs on. Sure, we might be able to put on some things, but they begin to peek out. And there's a bulge here and a lump here. Pretty soon they take over. And so Paul tells us, put to death what is earthly in you. It's important to see your sin, to recognize it, to repent of it, to be done with it. Paul's not using light language here. He says to kill your sin. It's like a fight. It's like a battle. Now you've been declared holy. So sin has no place in your life. Christ has called us to be holy as God the Father is holy, to be perfect as he is perfect. Not to continue on in our old ways, to get rid of them. Perhaps you've heard John Owen's famous quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So ask yourself, who has the leg up in my life? Is it me? Or is it my sin? Is it my old self? Who's killing who? In order to grow, in order to put on, we have to put off. We have to kill our desires. What Paul calls what is earthly in us. We have to radically depart from sinful habits, sinful actions, and even sinful desires and sinful attitudes and sinful thoughts. 
Because sin will kill, destroy, and ruin. But you can't just stop there. You need to put on. If we simply kill sin, we falter. And we find limited success. Because you can't just stop sinning. Sin must be replaced with worship. With the new self. Sin is the opposite of worship. It cannot glorify God. It won't even begin to. It offends him. It must be replaced. You could do away with every external vice, every external temptation, every external action of sin. And just because you cut those things out, the root of sin might still be in your heart. True repentance moves beyond simple sorrow That leads to stagnation. True repentance means real change and real resolve to replace sin with worship, to put on the new self. And this is why putting on is really the central practical aspect of growth, Christ. In doing this, we can't depend upon ourselves. We depend on ourselves for strength to kill sin and to put on worship and the new self will fail. We must rely on Christ and upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us. John 15, 8 says, I am the vine, this is Jesus speaking, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Romans 8, 11 tells us that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. We are dependent upon Christ, upon the power of the Holy Spirit working through us to even begin to change. We've been saved by the power of God alone, and we cannot be sanctified but by his power. So the why of Christian growth is our new identity, that we're chosen, that we're holy, that we're beloved, as verse 12 says. The how of Christian growth is that we put on the new self. And in conjunction with that, we kill sin. Now we want to consider with the rest and really the in totality, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, what Paul tells us, tells us growth in Christ looks like. Use the car analogy again. You're driving. The car is set. It's ready to go. You know how to turn the car on and use a blinker and push the gas pedal. But knowing isn't doing. You know where everything is. You know the pieces. You've got to put it into practice. In our Christian life, we can't just know how to change. We have to start changing and driving down the highway and bridges and roads and stopping at stop signs and going at green lights. We have to learn the flow of the Christian life. And Paul gives us a few pictures in Colossians 3, 12 to 17 of what growth in Christ looks like. The first thing is that growth in character, in Christ-like character, is what is to be in the Christian life. Growth looks like a new character, a Christ-like 
character. He tells us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He tells you to put on compassion, to, to truly begin caring for others. He tells you to put on kindness, goodness, generosity, uh, kindness, gracious sensitivity towards others that's ignited by genuine care for them. Humility. Humility, which checks the incessant race we have of making ourselves greater and greater because it's counting others more important than ourselves. Meekness and gentleness. Not overly impressed with ourselves. We're to put on meekness. We're to put on patience. Patience, which really is the right reaction towards people. All these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This is the character of Christ, isn't it? This is exactly what he has displayed and bestowed upon us. He's shown compassion to us in our sin. And Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's shown us kindness and bestowing upon us absolute and abundant mercy and grace that we can never earn or deserve. And he's manifested the utmost humility. What Philippians 2 says, he took on human flesh, and he didn't just stop there. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He tells us that he's gentle and lowly. We know that God is a patient God who has waited for us to turn to him. Repentance and faith. This is the character of Christ. And when these virtues and these character traits are begin to, when we begin to put them on, they result in in certain outcomes. And Paul would tell us in verse 13 that the first outcome of putting on the new self and putting on these Christ-like character traits is that we bear with one another. That's what he says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bearing with one another putting up with each other's faults and sins and shortcomings and offenses. Told elsewhere that love covers a multitude of sins. To be patient in forbearance with one another as we grow in Christ together. Notice here that sanctification isn't just about you. It encapsulates the whole Christian community and the local church and your interactions with each other. And we're to forgive one another. And the reason we're to forgive when we've been wronged, when we've been sinned against, is what? What does Paul tell us? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We've been given absolute pardon and forgiveness of sins. And our lives are to mirror that to others. Not holding faults against them. Not remembering their sins. Forgiving them. 
Putting on the new self, quite frankly, means that your relationships are transformed, that they're changed, that they're different. How could they not be? Our most foundational and important relationship, our relationship to God has been remedied. It's been radically transformed. So it's only fitting that our lives would reflect this reality. Paul tells us one more thing, though, in verse 14, that above all these, above compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, we are to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love binds together all the aforementioned virtues, all the character traits of Christ that we're to put on. But it also binds together the people of God. Your sanctification, again, isn't just for you, it's for the church. And what makes the church distinct and holy? It's our growth in Christ as we become more holy and therefore the whole church becomes more holy and we are a witness to the world and our love for one another is in a massive part of that. First John tells us that this is how we show that we are disciples of Christ. How could our church not radically be defined by love, by compassion, by forgiveness? Love is the motivator behind all of these. Because you can't show compassion to another without loving them first. You can't show kindness to another without loving them first. You can't be patient with them without loving them truly. You won't forgive someone actually unless you love them. You can't do any of this without love. Love is why Christ has forgiven us, why he's welcomed us, why he's humbled himself, why he bears with our burdens and our sorrows. And in Christ, we're able to put on this character, character that resembles Christ's character, character that is marked by these virtues and that is encompassed by love. Are you putting on this type of character in your life? Do you think that you could be described as a compassionate or kind or humble or meek or patient person? Are you someone who bears with others' faults? Are you someone that holds other people's faults and sins and shortcomings against them? How do you interact with your spouse by, defined by these traits, the character of Christ? Paul also tells us that the what of Christian growth means we put on a new focus. He tells us in verse 15, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Again, he's speaking to us and us corporately because our sanctification goes just beyond just us. The whole body is to be built up into Christ and transformed. And part of this is that the, priest, the peace of Christ would be the dominant force in our hearts and the dominant force in this church. 
It's to rule in our hearts. This is the peace of Christ that surpasses understanding. And it's meant to be like an umpire, is what this word gets at, or a referee. Maybe a lesson that you also learned growing up playing sports that my dad drilled into me as a young athlete when he coached me was, don't argue with the ref. Don't disrespect the man. What he says goes. And the peace of Christ is to act like that in our lives. It sets the feel, the pace, what our hearts are shaped by, are marked by, how we respond to things. Is your heart still? Is it ruled by the peace of Christ or is it ruled by your worries? Is it ruled by the peace of Christ or is it ruled by your anxieties or your frustrations or your stresses? Peace of Christ to be that which encompasses all else in our heart. Paul says, in this we are called into one body. Peace of Christ is not just meant to manifest itself in our hearts, but in this church. So that our church is marked by trust in Christ. Not worrying about what's going on in the world about us, but focusing on him. Not in strife with one another, but in unity with one another as fellow heirs. I want you to notice what Paul tacks on to the end of verse 15. He says, and be thankful. It's like he's going on and telling us what we are to be, and then he just says, and be thankful. Don't forget this aspect. He just sticks it in there, and he's going to do it two more times, actually. Being thankful even throughout Colossians, if you read through Colossians 1, you see that we are to be marked by thankfulness, and that Paul is marked by thankfulness. It's Paul's constant reminder to us that the Christian life is marked by thankfulness. Be thankful in these things as you do this. Kids, if, if, if you believe you've trusted in Christ and you want to begin to follow him more, start with thankfulness. Not with grumbling or complaining. Thankfulness for the little things that God has put in your life. Family. Provision of your family and your parents to care for you. Your friends thankful. Gilbert Burnett was a man who was a pastor in England in the late 1600s. And he made it his practice to visit uh, many small churches, parishes throughout uh, the area where he pastored. And so he traveled a lot. And during one of his travels, he uh, approached uh, just a beat down in a poor living place, this small house. And as he drew near, he heard this voice of joyous praise. Looking into the window, he saw an extremely and just abject poor woman. And what sat beside her was a piece of black bread and a cup of cold water. She was lifting her eyes and her hands to heaven and repeatedly exclaimed, What? All this? And Jesus Christ too? She had a glass of water, a meager house, a piece of bread. She was thankful. Because on top of all that Christ had given her, 
and the lavish blessings he had bestowed upon her spiritually, she received even more small provision of life. And so too, our lives, because of our status in Christ, our trust in Christ and what he's given us, are to be marked by thankfulness. There really shouldn't be any discontent Christians. We are to be a contented people. Content in Christ. Moving on with this new focus of the peace of Christ ruling in us and of being thankful, Paul tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To dwell in us. To take up residence in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls, in our minds. Not just with you, not just taking the word of Christ with you, but having it in you, not just beside you, but as part of you. Is God's word dwelling inside you? Is the gospel dwelling inside you? Do you know it? Is your life guided by it? How this coming year might you better equip yourself to let the word of Christ dwell in you? How might you better know the gospel and its realities, the word of God and the depths therein? The word of God, the gospel, is to be alive within us, guiding us, leading us. And it's to do so richly or abundantly, Paul says, with excess as if you're just soaking it up so much and it's in you so much that it can't help but spill out. And in the church, how is it that the word of Christ dwells in us? Paul tells us, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He gives us a command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then he tells us it's by teaching and admonishing and singing. Teaching, the truth proclaimed and given. Learning from one another, learning alongside one another. Our aim in everything we do as a church is to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim the gospel clearly. And this is to be the aim of each one of us here especially in relation to each other. We're to build one another up in this way. We're to help the word of Christ dwell in each other's hearts by reminding each other of its truth. And we're to admonish. This is the truth that's been taught, used to correct. To help realign each other's lives. When your brother steps out of line in sin, you say, that's not who you are. That's not who you've, made to, you've been made to be in Christ. You've been made new. Not just teaching, but it's correcting one another. And some of you might be surprised by this because you don't like it much, but singing is part of the way that the word of Christ dwells in his church. Have you ever given this thought? Have you ever realized this? That Singing worship and praise and songs to Christ on Sunday morning isn't just praise to God, but it's confessing truth to one another. 
That it's something more than just words coming out of your mouth, but it is us being united by the truth of Christ and God's word together. That it's actually important and it's part of how God shapes and transforms our community as a church. Some of you know this because you like to sing. Say, I love singing. I love singing on Sundays. We missed a few today. Mark Severance is a loud singer. Right? You can always hear him, especially if he goes a little too long or comes in too early. He finds joy in singing with Christ's body. My favorite people to hear on a Sunday morning singing beside me are those who know they're not that great at singing. But they're not bothered by it. They might even be tone deaf, but they're not bothered by it. They love to praise God with Christ's people. You don't have to be a singer to do this. Paul doesn't say singers sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, church, this is what you are to do to build one another up into Christ. To realize that what we do here on Sunday mornings isn't just singing. It goes beyond that. We want to sing scripture, saturated songs, so that when we sing, we proclaim the truth of Christ, the word of Christ, the word of God. Singing is part of our sanctification. And notice what he says at the end of verse 16 again as we consider the what of Christian growth. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul doesn't repeat a lot in these verses, but he repeats this three times. And here's the second one. Sing, teach, admonish with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Christian, you are to be marked by thankfulness even for the smallest things and basically foundationally because of what you've been given in Christ. There's one more aspect of what growth looks like, though. Growth gives us new character to put on, the character of Christ we saw in verses 12 and 13 and 14, but it also gives us this new focus. Right? The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. The word of God dwelling in us abundantly. Both in our hearts and in the church. He also, also shows us we're to have a new aim that encapsulates everything. That encompasses everything. He tells us in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything, whatever you do. Putting on the new self, growing in Christ, is meant to encapsulate every aspect of your life. His worship of Christ is now the main goal of our lives. Without exception. Without exception. Because now that your identity is in Christ, your sights are set on heaven, and you understand that putting on the new self is how you begin to grow in Christ's likeness and how you're given purpose, this focus should guide everything that you do. In Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in, and Paul wrote in here, this whatever you do statement is a funny statement. Whatever you do in word or deed, this is how he says it. Like if you just read the word straight. And everything, if anything, that you might do. Everything, 
if anything that you might do, there's no room here to move around. In case you thought you could get away with leaving some small piece of your life out of this and you could just remain your old self there and not grow in Christ and not put on Christ, I was not leaving any room for that. Your aim is now Christ in everything. Your work for your company or your boss or your clients. This is what Paul would say. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus because it's to please him. It should be in accordance with his character. Your studies as a student. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Your driving, your commute to school, to work, to church. Do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, in your parenting, in your marriage, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The way you communicate with your spouse, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The way you treat that weird, annoying, obnoxious neighbor who plays music at all hours, really loud, bass something. I don't have one, maybe you do. Do everything in the name of Lord Jesus. Kids, did you know that part of following Christ is obeying your parents? That's what later in Colossians 3 tells us. Children, obey your parents. Because if you want to honor Christ, you're going to do everything in his name and everything for him. So kids, you can begin to live for Christ right now, even in the small sphere of life you've been given. Because you can do everything in the name of Christ. Are you guys getting the picture here? Christ has redeemed all of you and all of your life. And therefore, all of your life is to reflect his character in everything, if anything, and anything you might do. Paul has to end one more time reminding us that as we live for Christ in everything, as we put on the new character he's given us, as we understand the what of growth in Christ, we are to give thanks to God the Father through him. All of our lives and everything are to be marked by true, humble thankfulness. This is... Part of the in everything, no matter what you do, when you do it, how you do it, do it thankfully. Because the Christian who has been put in Christ, who wants to grow in Christ, has grasped the reality of what it looks like to grow in Christ, understands that all of life is grace upon grace upon grace. Therefore, we are thankful in everything. Ask yourself this week, am I a growing Christian? Am I putting on the character of Christ? Is it bleeding out into my life? Is it giving me a new aim, a new focus? Is it encapsulating everything? Or are you feeling stagnant? Are you feeling stuck? If you're struggling, don't be discouraged. Christ has saved you and he intends to sanctify you, to make you holy. 
by his power, start with something small. Growth takes time, and the Lord has provided everything that you need. And if you are growing and you say, I think I'm progressing, I I think there's movement here, and not just movement, but progress. Keep striving. Depend on the Spirit. Depend on the power of Christ in you to help you put on Christ-likeness, to embody thankfulness. As Christians, we ought to be growing and understanding the why, the how, and the what of growth helps us along in that journey.